This is Care Less, Do More. Welcome back to Care Less, Do More. I'm Michelle Parker, your host, professional skier obsessed with all things biking. Much like my love for all of the different genres of skiing, biking captivates me on so many levels, from free ride to road racing and everything in between. Two wheels and a chain has me hooked. With the Tour de France wrapping up, I had the honor of connecting with today's guest on the show, former Tour de France competitor and stage winner, Levi Leipheimer. Levi is a spectacular athlete and was at the top of his game when road cycling was at its peak in popularity in the United States. Before we dive in, I'd like to thank Anon Optics for supporting the show. Did you all know that Anon makes sunglasses? They've done it before and they're back again with some premium shades in different styles. My favorite pair of glasses are the opportunists. They fit just right and don't slide off my face when I'm working hard. Like everything Anon makes, the quality is so high, but hey, I don't really like discussing sunglasses with people as I find it to be a very polarizing subject. So I'll just leave it with that and let's run this episode. Levi Leipheimer is a former professional American road racing cyclist from 1995 to 2012. Born and raised in Butte, Montana, growing up his main sport was skiing. After breaking his back in a downhill race at Jackson Hole, he redirected his energy towards cycling. Growing up, he chased his older brother of seven years on his bike, and when his brother graduated high school, Levi spent a lot of time alone on two wheels. Not a very typical thing for a teenager in Butte, Montana, but he was inspired and had found something that he was driven by. There came a point in time when Levi went all in with cycling, which eventually led him to become one of the very top American cyclists. He wore a lot of yellow jerseys, won Olympic medals, won a stage in the Tour de France in 2007, three times winner of the Tour of California, and found himself racing in the Lance Armstrong era of road cycling. Welcome to the podcast, Levi. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Where do we start? I guess at the beginning. I didn't know that you grew up as a ski racer. I did. I did. I was on skis shortly after my first birthday. My parents were, they're both ski instructors. Um been in the ski industry my whole life they had a ski shop in butte montana that i grew up working at in mounting skis tuning bikes selling clothing yeah was it skis in the winter and bikes in the summer exactly yeah Yeah. so that was your introduction to both of those sports then i presume it was it was yeah but skiing was my first sport you know that's what my family did and growing up in montana there was plenty of winter it was very long winter every year Yeah, it seems like quite the contrast of sports too, but they complement each other quite well. They do. In fact, I, you know, the reason I got on a road bike in the beginning was to be in shape for ski racing. And then I quickly found out that (laughs) that was my sport. Huh? Yeah. Where did that, like, when did that epiphany happen? Fairly quickly. I was, I was 13 years old. I got a bike, my brother and his friends, they were like seven to 10 years older than, than I was at the time. So they were early twenties. And they had a they had a cycling club in Butte, Montana, which is probably the only time in history that's ever going to happen. And they would do uh, rides every night during the week. And um, I got a road bike, you know, I had tennis shoes and a t-shirt. I had a chamois, but it was just very bare minimum equipment. And after two weeks, I could uh, already drop them up the climbs. No so way. <laughs> I, I had found my my calling for sure, but it was more. It was more than just being good at it. It was really the sense of freedom and the efficiency of it, the the distance you could go on your under your own power that was really just drew me 
Yeah. When you say that, it makes me think because I have friends like the Morrison brothers or these people who it seems like it's almost naturally within them that they're superhuman athletes. Do you feel like that's a part of the endurance athletic pursuit? Like you're born with something that you just have? I think I was definitely born with the the endurance gene or whatever whatever you want to call it, talent, um, predisposition. Yeah. It just felt right for me. Yeah. I don't think I have it, but I work really hard at it. (laughs) (laughs) I can suffer though. That's one thing for sure. Yeah. Um, So you broke your back in a downhill race at Jackson Hole. Yeah. I was doing a a fist downhill in Jackson, 1991. I was 15, 16 years, 16 years old. I can't, now I can't remember. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, yeah, just compression fracture, one of my vertebrae and I kept racing after that, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think by the time I was 16, 17, it was pretty clear that I didn't have the talent to be, um, on the U S ski team or one of the best skiers in the world, but cycling was definitely calling me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And was that after you moved to Utah? I moved to Utah. I I went to Romark in, in, uh, for my last year of high school there in Salt Lake city. And, um, the, the the ironic the ironic part of that is that the cycling scene there was pretty strong and right. so you know it ended up being a, a good thing for me to move there and be, get into that cycling scene and then eventually start going to Belgium to race and it seems like when you went to Belgium that was a point in your life where you were like all or nothing I'm going in on cycling absolutely yeah I mean I I loved ski racing and um, it was you know it was my first sport but I, I found cycling on my own. It wasn't the sport that, um, I was, you know, following the rest of my family into. Mm -hmm. It was my thing. I was good at it. I loved it. I, I mean, when I was 13 years old, I had a VHS tape of the Tour of France and I watched it so much. It actually like wore the tape out, you know, like degraded the point where you're just watching snow on the television. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just. It just, um, you know, fulfilled me. It was really what I was meant to do on this earth. Yeah. And um, I just decided, like, I, I wasn't going to race my bike in the U.S. It was, it's geographically too big to get to all the races, too expensive. I just wanted to get to Europe, get to Belgium, where it's a small country. There are numerous races every day of the week. You could, I could ride my bike to the race, race, ride home. Um, there was prize money. I made enough to just survive and live in a hostel for three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was that like a quick introduction into your future of biking too, being on the road? And I don't know, I would imagine that that would have been somewhat challenging too at the same time. Oh yeah. Like if I think back to it, it, you know, that was a kind of a tough life, but I was, I was in love with it and it was adventure and you know, I was on my own, spent a lot of time alone and it was just, I was forging my own path. And even, even at the time I didn't really realize it, but, um, that's where my heart was. And I just never, never second guessed it. I never complained to myself about how hard it was or the fact that it was lonely. Um, it's just what, what I love to do. Did you start to pick up sponsors at that point? 
No, not really. I mean, uh, cycling's a little, it's a little different structure when it comes to sponsors. There are teams and the teams get sponsors and then, you know, they, the teams, um, recruit riders. Okay. So as a rider, you never really have to worry about sponsorship. You just have to worry about results and getting on a team. Right. Yeah. Quite different. So there is yeah. no like individual sponsor. I mean, you know, later in my career, I had like sunglasses and shoes right. separate from the team. If the team opened up a certain category that you could get your own sponsor, then that became a, a part of it. But most of the time, no, there was, mm-hmm. there were no inter- individual sponsors, and which was nice in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that takes a lot of work for the athlete. It does take Obviously, a lot of work. as you know. Yeah, for sure. And I would imagine too, in a team setting, like it kind of evens the playing field when everyone's taken care of and it's like everyone has the same sponsors. Totally, totally. And it's, that's what makes a team, you know, you all have the same bike, you have the same clothing, the helmet, glasses, whatever. Some, some teams have that category locked up, but um, yeah, everyone, like you said, everyone's equal. Yeah. In that sense. Is everyone equal or is there different pay grades on the oh, team? Yeah, there's ab- absolutely different pay grades. Yeah. Huge, huge discrepancy in pay grade, um, which is like other team sports, you know, basketball, football, baseball. Um, there are superstars and then there are, um, there are the players who are there to support the superstars. Yeah. Yeah. So there are different pay grades, but, um, generally everyone has realized their potential and their role and accepted it for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine that at times that would be a bit of an ego hit. Like I'm a competitive athlete and, uh-huh. and I want to be number one, but if someone's like, you're going to be the domestique. Like, how does that, I mean, as you said, generally everyone realizes their potential. Mm -hmm. You know, to be honest, there weren't that many, uh, clashes in ego in my experience. And I was around for, you know, nearly 20 years. Um, there was a very famous one between Alberto Contador and Lance Armstrong when, when Lance came back, those two definitely locked horns. Um, which is, you know, is understandable. Alberto was the best at the time and Lance was coming back and, um, you know, he had taken a break, but he wanted to continue to be the best, but he wasn't anymore. And so, uh, that was definitely the, the one clash that comes to mind. But other than that, honestly, there wasn't, there wasn't that many battles internally in teams because a lot of the times there's so many races throughout the calendar and so many races that suit different abilities. I mean, there are certain races that are just almost a completely different sport that, for, for example, I would never be competitive at, like Paris-Roubaix, like could never be competitive at that. Right. Um, so a lot of times everybody had their chance to, mm-hmm. to uh, get their own personal result, results and, and be supported by others and then vice versa. You could, like for me, I had support from uh, riders that I could then uh, turn around and support them at their race. So for the most part, it really was pretty symbiotic and, and, uh, and a very cohesive environment. I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of watching the tour right now is kind of understanding that team dynamic. And, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, even watching like Wout Van Aert give mm-hmm. Jonas a hug at the end of a stage and like how true and deep that is. I'm like, 
And Matei, I watched uh, an interview with him after winning a stage, and he was in tears and talking about mm -hmm. how he felt so lucky and he wished everyone could win a stage. Yeah. And it made me cry watching yeah. him, and it made me understand a lot more of that team dynamic and, and how it, it is, to some regard, an individual sport, but it's really a team sport. It's, it's tricky because it's both at the same time. It is an individual sport, but it, you can't do it alone. So it's team and individualistic. And, um, you know, you bring up Wout Van Aert and Jonas Vingegaard. I mean, that's, that's one situation where it could be tricky because two huge superstars. And, you know, Wout came up dry this tour. But, like, last year, for example, there was, as you saw in the Netflix series, there's tricky situations where split-second decisions have to be made about, uh, what to do and, and where to just go for it. So, yeah, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. there was one stage where about went out mm -hmm. and he was leading and the team called him back. Um, yeah, I don't remember that stage. I, I remember the stage where he had yellow and he, you know, he, they crest, it was early on in the tour and he crested the little climb ahead and he kept going, even though Jonas was right behind him. And, you know, there was drama over that, but I actually think it was the right thing to do because he won the stage. He, he didn't really, you know, Jonas, I think wouldn't have gained much time. If any, if he, if Wout had waited for him, I think everybody would have been more motivated behind to, to catch if Jonas was with Wout. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny because every year in the tour, the first few stages, people get all bent out of shape out of a 10 or 20 second time loss, mm -hmm. but it rarely matters in the end. Right. Yeah. We're skipping ahead to the tour, which is awesome because oh, I have so many questions. <laughs> no, it's great. I was leading you there. But I want to go back to your path and like mm -hmm. and and how you worked your way up in the rankings and and one day found yourself on the tour. That's a good question. I mean, um when I was thirteen and I watched the tour every every day on that VHS tape, um you know, I can look back now and, and see the passion and the drive that was there and, and just say, well, of course I made it because I had that. But at the time, it was just a dream. It was a far off dream that, you know, you can never, when you're 13, you can never really know for sure you're going to be there or not. So it, it was just, you know, mile by mile, kilometer by kilometer, because this is a metric sport, day by day, year by year a race by race, whatever, of just, you know, doing what I loved and keep going. And it was an adventure and a journey. And, um, yeah, until I, until I got selected to go to the tour, it was just always sort of a dream. Mm -hmm. And does that selection come from obviously your previous performance and then the team picks you up that's already on the tour or how does that work? Well, there's different um, levels of teams in the sport. There's the teams that are in the Tour de France are, are the top level. And then there's, you know, second tier and third tier and uh, all the way down to just club teams. And so you, you work your way up, you know, you get to like, like I started off as in, in the U.S. on a pro team in the U.S. that just did racing in the U.S. And then uh, one, I did, had enough good results there that I went to U.S. Postal that was 2000, but wasn't selected for the tour because I was brand new to that team. And so I was doing, um, like the B races, but I was on the top level team in the world, but doing the B races. Mm -hmm. And so my second year on the team, I went to the tour of Spain, which is one of the 
three big grand tours in cycling. There's three races that are three, three weeks long, Tour de France, Tour of Italy, and the Tour of Spain. And um, I went to the Tour of Spain in 2001 with the U.S. Postal and actually got third, which was, in this sport, is pretty incredible mm-hmm. for your first three-week tour. And then all of a sudden I had offers that I didn't have a contract actually for the next year, which worked out really well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, had a bunch of offers from other teams and I went to a Dutch team called Rabobank, which is actually now Jumbo Visma was born out of Rabobank. Oh, no way. Um, a lot of the staff and, and structure from Rabobank is now over at Jumbo Visma. Um, but anyway, uh, went to Rabobank and, and they were like, we, we need somebody for the Tour of France. So. I, all of a sudden I was leading a Dutch team in the Tour de France 2002. Wow. That must have been a pretty awesome moment for you. Yeah, it was a, it was a steep, over the course of three years, it was a pretty steep uh, progression. Yeah. Yeah. And I asked this right before the podcast, but like how did the USPS afford to support <laughs> a team? I, I mean, I don't have the answer for you, actually. I don't know. <laughs> and how much money does it cost to support an entire team? Well, it's changed over the years. I mean, back then it was probably less than $10 million. And now you see UAE and Bahrain, Merida, Astana, Ineos, Yumbo Visma. I mean, their, their budgets are, I mean, I haven't been reading the cycling news that closely, but I'm guessing at least $40 million. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. It's grown significantly. Yeah, it's grown a lot. So they, they, which is great because they take care of their riders a lot more. They yeah. have nutritionists and trainers and, um, you know, uh, scientists that are there just to work on equipment and aerodynamics and tactics. They, they apply a lot more math to everything. Um, there are more soigneurs who do the massage and take care of the food. There are more mechanics. Mm-hmm. So everybody's not as overloaded with work as in the past. Right. Like your era of cycling. Yeah. Our era was like, you know, people had to really work hard. Not that they don't work hard now, but they had more responsibility. So nowadays they can um, specialize and focus a lot more. And the riders have way more at their disposal as far as resources. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're getting the, the most out of their, their bodies and re- they're getting the best recovery possible. And I think you see that more now in, yeah. in my day and age. Would you agree with me? Because I, every time I watch a stage and I'm kind of just like, this is the hardest sporting event in the world. I mean, I think so because it's three weeks long and um, it, it, it's a, it's a um, low impact sport, which is important to note because. Unless something goes wrong. Yeah, yeah. exactly. exactly. <laughs> But like you couldn't, you physically couldn't run that much. For example, the pounding would just wouldn't allow you to. Yeah. But in cycling, you can sit there and, and rev your heart and stress your muscles and your lungs more than you can in any, any other sport because it's such low impact sport. But yeah. you're really redlining yourself uh, for a long time. You know, three weeks long, six, seven hours a day, and it's it's never easy. It's never like, Oh, we're just sitting back drinking some wine and eating some baguettes in France. I mean, right. it's stressful. It's dangerous. It's hard to remember to eat and drink enough and it's hot. And, um, yeah, it's, it's super intense. You're yeah. on the limit almost all the time. 
Can you talk about how like just riding in a Peloton like that? I, I would, I mean, I watch it and I'm like, that seems super stressful. One person hits a tire or clips a water bottle and everyone goes down like that anxiety or like stress would be, I mean, it's a huge mental game too. Totally. Um, I think that it's funny because, uh, tried to try to relate it to people who, you know, always ask those questions and after about two or three days in the Tour de France, you're really, you're fried. I mean, it's mainly because of your nerves. You're already super tired and just, it's hard to get to sleep because you're so wound up and stressed out during the day. So, um, yeah, I remember like the field sprints, for example, the last 20K, it's like, it felt like it just took time off your life. Right. Yeah. Do you think that it does? Like there's long-term effects to that kind of endurance? I mean, that's probably a study that should happen, if not have already happened. But the life expectancy of a Tour de France rider is probably a little bit on the short side. Huh, yeah. Yeah. I would imagine same with ultra running and stuff like this. I've done one long ride. That was a five-weeker with Cody Townsend. We rode our bikes from California to the Canadian border. Pulling the skis in your gear? Yeah, yeah. And there was one moment on the very last day where the grade was so high that I was pushing my bike, but I didn't have a big enough... uh, Yeah, I didn't have big enough gears to, like, spin quite quickly. Cody had... He could spin it out where I was pushing super hard on my pedals, and I felt it in my knees, and I was like, oh, no, I'm doing detrimental damage right now. Yeah could kind of feel that but yeah I would imagine that yeah the stress the fatigue like you said three days in you're mentally tapped and then how does that carry over because it is like a you don't you not only have to be the strongest person but you also have to be super smart and cognitively with it right totally and uh like the third week everybody's tired everybody's nerves are fried both the riders and the staff and that's when a lot of mistakes happen like stupid mistakes people just aren't paying attention you know, the crashes very rarely happen when it's the the most dangerous and everybody's super focused. It's when people start to relax and they're not paying attention and mm. you run into a sign or like a roundabout. You're just, you know, that's, you said something about uh, trash talking the Peloton. There's actually not a lot of talking because for me, that was a big rule. Like I didn't want to talk to people because I wanted to pay attention. Yeah. Because I saw so many times when people were chatting, looking at each other. And a crash would happen. Yeah. (laughs) So that gives you an idea of how just how focused you have to be and how that, how hard that is in the third week. So there's no shit talking. Uh, very little. Yeah. To be honest, very little. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed because I wanted the inside beef, but that's pretty cool. (laughs) What about, I mean, there's, there's There's some at the dinner table. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Talk about like, not amongst yourself, like not to each other, but about the other teams. Yeah. That happens. Naturally. Yeah. Um, what about like elbows being thrown and stuff? Like occasionally it seems like that happens. It does. There's some pushing and shoving, but, um, you know, as, as I got more experience, I got older, that was not something that uh, the the respected um, veterans would do or allow. Mm-hmm. Usually, it was the the uh, insecure up and comers that felt like they had to, um, you know, carve out their place in the peloton, and it's not it's not the way to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's super it's, dangerous. It's disrespectful. Yeah. Yeah. All of the above. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> I mean, in in a field sprint to protect yourself, like if you need to 
stay on the wheel, I think that's a different story. I mean, and I'm not a sprinter, but those guys know best. And if they have to like push against somebody who's trying to come in on them, yeah. that's totally acceptable. But on the other hand, if they're um, leaning on someone to get into their spot, then that's not acceptable. And, and they can be disqualified for that, obviously. So Right. It seems like one of the most hectic moments in the race, too, when everyone goes for the sprint finish. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's like positioning and like, <laughs> I would imagine, too, from viewing it, and I don't understand it as well as you, obviously, but oftentimes there's maybe two guys in the lead. And one person's pulling the second guy, and the second guy is making the pass when it's best for him. Mm-hmm. And he's been pulled for a minute. Like, I'm always like, oh no, this just seems like almost unfair because the first person's probably a little bit more gassed. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really answer that because I'm not a sprinter. I was usually the person in the back just trying to um, make sure there weren't any gaps and not crash and being terrified. <clears throat> but those guys are amazing. They're, they're such good bike handlers. They can lean on each other at 70K an hour, millimeters from a tire next to them, and not crash. Wow. And they're not afraid. Yeah. They're just, I mean, I had the most respect for those guys because they're just incredible athletes and um, bike handling skills through the roof. And knowing their body and, like, when they can push and how long they can redline for before blowing up. Like, it seems like this huge chess game. Yeah, they ha- I think, you know, they're not they're not actually thinking, they're just going off instinct. Yeah. And sprinters they they find their form, they find their flow and some of them can do no wrong like Jasper Philipson in this Tour de France. I, you you saw there was one where it was like, "Oh, he's not going to win. He's so boxed out." He yeah. got like push back, push back and then he finds his way out and just does it perfectly and it's that's when you know like a sprinter's really on form is when they can get their way they can get out of trouble and get out of a position where most of the time, um, most sprinters would just, they, their, their race is lost in that position. Right. Yeah. I've been really psyched for Jasper because on the Netflix series, they named him Jasper the disaster and then he's on top this year and it's wonderful to see. Such a cool story. And I'm I'm stoked that they did that series because it really does bring out the personalities in the sport and gives everyone an insight into what, what's going on. Yeah. Can you describe to me what your job was in the Peloton and on your team? Well, it depend, depended on the race um, and changed from team to team. But, you know, I was more like a um, like a Vingegaard. I never won the tour. But I kind of relate to him because I think, in my opinion, I think Pogacar is the better rider. But I think Vingegaard has just ridden perfectly the last two years which is what he needed to do he needed to just never make a mistake be on his top form have the best team around him both um riders wise and staff wise and i think yumbo visma is clearly doing a better job of supporting the riders than any other team mm-hmm. um like as a team as a whole or like the staff and everything all of it i everything. think all of it yeah. i think that they're his the riders around him are a step you know, better than uh, the rest of the teams. And clearly, I think that those riders are being taken care of day-to-day better somehow on a a different level than the rest of the teams because, like, you can see, especially in the third week, you can see which teams are are better. And those guys are still recovering and still doing really well. And um, that's just a sign of uh, environment within the team and planning and 
strategy and execution. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Vingegaard on the time trial, I was like, well. I think everybody was surprised. So shocking. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think for Vingegaard to beat Van Aert by over a minute, it was like, that's impressive, but is in line with his past performances. But what, uh, sorry, did I say Pogacar? What well, Pogacar beat Van Aert. But Vingegaard beating Pogacar by a minute and a half, that's just like, nobody expected that. No. Yeah. Yeah. We've been uh, doing a lot of road riding during the last three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm with Aaron, my partner, and like, I'm Vingegaard and he's Pogacar. Yeah. But I really, I think I, I love Tade. Is that how you say his first name? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I love, his, he's always so smiley and like, yeah. seems really relaxed and like, I, yeah. I like that a lot yeah. more, but we just refer to each other like that on the bike yeah. and, and I'm always like attack from the back and we're like <laughs> totally have our own little tour de France every day. We yeah. Ride. I mean, it's, so it's, fun. it's pretty easy to like, uh, Tade. You yeah. Know, he, he's, he's taking it himself a little less seriously. He's more relaxed. He's got a big personality, mm -hmm. but he's so talented. So, so talented. talented. And it, I think it's just interesting because Vanguard, I think he is coming from a little bit more of the underdog position and he, he knows he has to be extremely calculated and uh, like just do everything perfectly. And I think that that's actually a better state to be in. I would agree. And Pogacar's like, no, I'm the best. I'm going to show everybody I'm the best. He wastes a little bit of energy because he's, he's definitely not arrogant, but he's very confident. And I think that leads to... Uh, you know, just in the Tour de France, you have to be surgical and he's yeah. not quite so surgical. Yeah. I think even with sports psychology, you almost want to go into your sport acting like you're number two. Yeah. You never want to get comfortable sitting yeah. on top. Yeah. Yeah. Can you break down like each person on the team and what their roles are? You know, it depends on which team we're talking about. I mean, some teams, for example, um, Alpecin, uh, Jasper's team, he's got a He's got a different set of riders to help him win sprints than uh, Vanguard has to help him win the Tour de France. Right. You know, like um, Pogacar has these, uh, you know, like a handful of really small mountain goats that can help him in the mountains, whereas uh, Alpecin, they don't have, I don't think they have a single one. Right. But yet he's won four stages, and it's a very successful team, uh, Tour de France for that team. Yeah. So it, it really depends on the team and the goal of the team and the, you know, what their superstar looks like. Right. And so they're building the team based on that superstar's skill set. They're building the team to get the most exposure that they can for their sponsors. Right. Whether that's winning field sprints because they think they have the best or one of the best sprinters in the world or win the whole Tour de France or to get the polka dot jersey or to win a bunch of stages. Mm -hmm. We've seen a few teams that have won a handful of stages just going in breakaways. Yeah. So they, they have a group of riders because maybe they don't have somebody who can win the tour. They don't have a sprinter who can win field sprints. So they have to look for those other opportunities um, to win stages and, or, or just be in the breakaway and be on television. Yeah. A lot of the French teams are built around that, just getting on television. And I would imagine there's extra pressure being a French rider. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, there is, I think there, I, well, I can't answer it cause I'm not French, yeah. but, um, you know, it's been a long time since a French rider won the tour de France and 
I think it's starting to be a, a thing. Mm-hmm. It's starting to be a thing for all the up and coming French riders. It's like a burden. Mm. And they're starting to, I think they're starting to feel like they're just not as good. Right. And that can be like a, a tough thing to overcome. It's kind of surprising as a fan because you would think that road riding in France would be so big from such a young age. Like, it, yeah. that's what I would imagine. Yeah, I think it is. It's just that they've been unlucky not to have somebody who's good enough. Yeah. Um, you know, and I really want to get critical. I, I don't think the French, the, the purely French teams, which, who, which, by the way, they tend to be nationalistic they don't like to hire a lot of foreign riders right which i think is a detriment because totally. um if you look at the biggest teams there it's a it's a conglomerate of riders across the world but um the french teams they don't quite have the budget either mm-hmm. and that's i don't know what that reason is they just don't have big budgets yeah fair yeah um, so when you were, you were in the Lance Armstrong era and mm-hmm. you raced alongside, you were teammates with him. Mm-hmm. How was that entire experience? Like that was, I would say the peak of cycling in the United States as far as viewership goes, right? Yeah. I was both a competitor. Um, you know, when he was winning his seven tours in a row, I was there for what, uh, four of them or so. And, you know, he was just, it was, it was tough. We were all racing for second, third, and mm-hmm. fourth. He, he was very dominant. And the team was really strong. And it was a different era. But it is what it is. It is what it was. And, um, yeah, he was just, they just did an amazing job of, I mean, he would focus on the tour. And, you know, kind of going back to what we were saying about um, going into being in the right mental space i think he he was very surgical like just saved his energy for where it really mattered to win the tour never really um did things just to show he was the strongest uh he he just would race to win Mm -hmm. which is the way to do it um and then yeah then he went away and um it was then it was you know it's pretty interesting because it opened the door for other superstars like uh, Alberto, and I was part of that, and then I was part of when he came back, and um, yeah, it was just a, it was a, a yeah, historical time in, in our sport. And yeah. I saw the sport change a lot. You know, we, we obviously had an era that was um, kind of a wild west. It didn't have a lot of science as far as the the anti-doping was mm-hmm. concerned the 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 products that were out in those days were ahead of the testing but then I, during my career I saw the testing catch up in 2008 they implemented what was known as or what is known as the biological passport and I I saw that have a big uh, impact on our sport it was it's basically like a fingerprint for each each individual rider so they could really narrow down the uh, parameters of blood values, um, and, you know, other ways of testing through urine or whatever hair to, uh, narrow down each individual person's, um, range, whether it was, um, hematocrit, which is a percentage of red blood cells in your overall blood volume, for example, it just narrowed everything down to the point where, um, taking 
performance enhancing drugs was not really plausible anymore. Right. So um, that was a great thing to see because I don't think anybody really wanted to take performance enhancing drugs. It was just part of the sport and reality back then that was unfortunate. Yeah. And so it, I think, you know, most people applauded the biological pla- passport in inside and outside the sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. It just became a part of the culture. And at what point in your career did that, like, was that once you hit a certain level of cycling where it was like, well, now everyone who's at the top is doing this? That's a really good question because, um, you know, I can remember even when I was a teenager getting into the sport, there were uh, doping scandals back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so as I progressed in the sport, I mean, I was exposed to so many stories and um, positive doping results. I mean, it just became a common theme in the sport. And so over time, you just start to um, think it's normal and accept it. And the farther up the chain you get, and then you really start to get closer and closer to it, and you, you actually talk to other people, and you see it for yourself, and then it, it really hits home, and you're just like, wow, this is some, this thing, this uh, doping problem, let's call it a problem, because it was, it's so much bigger than me. And so my choice is to either go home, well, I had, you have really a few choices. Go home, just give up, try to go as far as you can without it which is definitely what i think most people do Um, they don't just make that decision to cross the line right away it's something you you sit with for a long time and then eventually you know you justify it and you're like well if everybody else is doing it and you know and then you for me that's what i did i just was like it's it's not cheating if everyone else is doing it even though i didn't want to do it yeah so um luckily you know i I was on teams with uh, doctors I really trusted that really gave me some great advice, and I'm really grateful for that because first and foremost was my concern was my own health. Yeah. Um, so I, I felt comfortable doing what I did. Of course, you never know down the road, but right. um, I, it doesn't really haunt me. Let's put it that way. You seem at peace with it all. Like, oh, yeah. I'm definitely at peace with the deci- decisions I made. I, we were all between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I did the best I could. Quick intermission from this episode to thank a couple of our sponsors. I've got to say, Darn Tough Vermont is a company that keeps on giving. They recently held a fundraiser for the flooding in Vermont, and they consistently step up to help their community and beyond. I'm always impressed, and it makes me that much bigger of a fan of the brand. Picking the right socks for your adventures makes a huge difference. Darn Tough's merino wool socks come in many different shapes and sizes for your needs, be that hiking, biking, or just walking. The merino wool helps prevent blisters, wicks moisture, and keeps your feet comfortable on the trail. Today, I've got a code to share with you for 10% off plus free shipping valid through August 31st. The link will be in the show notes, and the code is, in all caps, DTLOVE-MORE. Forewarning, these socks are a gateway for happy feet, and you'll definitely want more than one pair. Once again, the code is DTLOVE-MORE, all caps. 
And thank you to Sierra Nevada. They have delicious bevies made just for you. Perfect for these summertime months. Hard kombucha, mimosas, barrel-aged imperial stouts, IPAs, wheat beers, pilsners, in a hop splash, sparkling water, which is amazing, sours, Sierra Nevada makes it all. Brewed here in California in a little place called Chico, Sierra Nevada has been making beers since 1980 and fine-tuning the process ever since with the environment in mind. I'm pretty fired up to be working with them as a supporter of Care Less Do More as they are a stand-up company and it's easy to support them in return. When you were talking about that and you were talking about justifying it after being exposed to it for so long, it brought me in my mind to the first time I skied in Chamonix and I was looking at these really heads up lines that if they were on the east side of the Sierra Nevada or in Tahoe, I probably wouldn't ski them because of the, I mean, in one case, I remember looking at the Gervasudi and it had this huge hanging Serac. It was icy. You couldn't tell if it was neve or snow. And unfortunately I was there during high pressure and we couldn't ski, but I found myself over time looking at the photos and justifying why I would ski it. Mm -hmm. And my tolerance for risk went up quite quite a bit because I was surrounded by that culture. Right. So I think it is like a relatable position to be in. Like totally. it's you exactly, want something. Exactly yeah. the same thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean I'm not obviously I ski, I'm not at your level, but I can I know what you're talking about and it it is exactly the same thing. Yeah. And when we talk about doping, like from my understanding, I don't know a ton about it, but um, it's more than just blood doping. Oh yeah, there were, I mean, in my day, there were a lot of products floating around the Peloton. Yeah. The most common, of course, was EPO, mm -hmm. um, but there were others, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I would like to think that none of that exists now. I mean, I don't think, I, you know, we were talking before the podcast about during my era, there was a lot of smoke and there was a lot of fire too, but there was a lot of smoke and it just seems like now there's, there are no fires, but there's not even smoke. So, um, it, does that mean there's no doping? I no, it's not a guarantee, but, um, I think with the biological passport and the fact that it's just never in the news is, is gotta be a great thing. I really hope it is. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. In my research, before I even re reached out to you, I was like, is it still a thing? And I, w I went down the rabbit hole and I couldn't find anything either. I was like, yeah. oh, that's awesome. It yeah. seems like it's cleaned up. And yeah, yeah. I would hope so. Yeah. yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, it's it, regardless of either side, like, like you mentioned, I think at that time it was just a given. Um, yeah, it was really, really stressful. It was a super <laughs> stressful thing. It was a nightmare. Um, to be caught or exposed and it just wasn't something that I don't think any 13, 13 year old dreamt about totally when it, we came to riding the tour de France. Yeah. Yeah. The risk of getting caught would have such a heightened level of stress. I feel like. Yeah. And you said that the, the doping was ahead of the science. So like if you were mm -hmm. getting tested, you were likely not going to get caught, but there was still a chance. Yeah. I mean, if you were, you know, it was pretty easy to, to get around it. Yeah. You'd have to really make a mistake. Yeah. And then, I mean, just looking into what the athletes today are doing, it's like your food is measured out. Like you said, there's mm -hmm. nutritionists, mm -hmm. there's people, there's sciences on your side to make you the best version of your human performing self. Yeah, totally. I mean, they have just been able to carve out bigger budgets and support the riders a lot more in that yeah. sense. And not, not that that automatically um, 
cancels out any doping that would happen, but I just think that that could explain why they're going just as fast or faster. Right, right. You know, equipment's a lot better. Training is, is progressed. Everybody has access to the support that they need. Mm-hmm. I think the, the difference between first and last in the Tour de France is probably closer. Right. So it's just the competition is tight. Yeah. Bit more competitive in a sense. In that sense, yeah. 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 Well, it's a level playing field too. Yeah, and you can never, it's really hard to, I'm sure as you can relate, to compare um, a superstar from one generation to a superstar from another. It's like, it's apples and oranges. It's just so hard to do. Like, I think Pogacar is one of the best we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's tough to compare because he's competing against different riders. He has much different equipment. But um, he sure is fun to watch. He's super fun to watch. Yeah. Pitcock, too, on his descents is fun to watch. Oh, my God, yeah. I wish I, <laughs> I wish I could go downhill like that. I think it's quite impressive that he's a mountain biker and then also riding the tour. Yeah. Does that happen often? Well, I mean, I mean um, Matthew Vanderpool, you know, okay. and Wout Van Aert, they're both cyclocross, and Matthew Vanderpool has battled with Pitcock on the mountain, on the mountain bike, so... It, it's happened uh, a few times, mm-hmm. but it's not common, no. Yeah. Um, can you describe to me, like, a year in your life at that time? Like, mm-hmm. training blocks, mental state, do you take time off? How many races are you doing? Are you only focused on the Tour de France? Yeah, I mean, most of the years the Tour was the main focus. Um, but that's there were other important races, and... Uh, for me, like Tour California, for example, I, 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 I love to train hard for that. It was just a home race and was always really motivated for it. And it was far enough away from the tour that it didn't really impact my um, preparation for the Tour de France. But in general, it was like November 1st through sep- middle of September, you were, you were racing full gas, mm-hmm. racing and training. So you had like maybe two months, maybe at the most, two months to relax. Mm-hmm. And recover, I would assume. Yeah, just mentally, just yeah. um, stay home. Don't travel. Don't go to an airport. <laughs> That's recovery to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate my home time for sure, which yeah. I've been getting a lot more of now. That's good. Yeah. I think similarly in skiing, like when I started out as an athlete, in some respect, it seemed easier because there was no social media. It was everything was based on your performance. Yep. Um, and I came up in an era where I was one of eight women competing in slope style and half pipe. And, and then now I see the level, as you said, it's apples to oranges comparing an older generation to a new generation. Like, I don't know, the 15 year old girls at Palisades are throwing double backflips. And I'm like, I've never done that before. Like, that's amazing to me. Um, but now I have way more support when it comes down to nutrition and like working out and training and mental health, like that seems a lot more relevant now. Whereas back in the day we were, I mean, ski racing was one thing. And I think I kind of rebelled in a sense from that and went into free skiing, which was like more rock star party. Like you were just doing the thing and it was super fun. And then I remember when like one person started working out and we were like, damn it, (laughs) there goes it for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but now, I mean, health and, like, wellness and all of that, I think it's so much more important to, like, have that in the sport and 
see how far we can go because it is quite incredible to see it now. That's, I mean, it's fun. It's, I love hearing you talk about that because that's the progression of a sport, a sport growing up in a sense that, well, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but I've seen that. I've seen it in, like nowadays in, in cycling, we have gravel, which is just a rebranding of what's always kind of been there, but gravel in a sense is getting more competitive and people are like, damn it, they're actually training and they're, yeah. they're taking it serious. And so it's the same sort of thing. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's interesting because I don't know that I, to me, it means the sport is legitimate Yeah, in a sense. Absolutely. Which I think like also being on this fringe sport for me anyways, I think that skiing in the style that I do it is quite fringe. It's not mainstream. You're not a huge celebrity and, and no one's making millions of dollars doing what I do. But I think the downside of that is... That's, that's because many people can't appreciate what you do because they can't even get close to what you're doing. Right, it's not relatable. Yeah. And I mean, it's everybody not can go, Anyone can go ride a road bike. Yeah. But nobody can go do what you do. That is, sim- that is true. It's not super relatable. But at the same time, I've always felt like people don't take us seriously as athletes at times. Even like when it comes to sponsorship obligations, I'm like, man, if I'm on the road this much, like I can't go to the gym and stick to my training program and still show up. And then you go to the movie tours and everyone's partying and like, I've gotten pretty good at like having my soda water and bitters and just like staying pretty chill about everything. But it is quite hard to balance that like athletic pursuit at the same time as all the obligations and perform at your best. And in a sense, I wish that our sport was taken more seriously by other people because then it would maybe allow the athlete to train and go all in a little bit totally, more. Totally, totally. I, I, I see what you're saying. And I, I, you know, like right when I retired is when social media was starting to blow up. And I feel for the athletes nowadays that have to not only get results, but be this persona and create their own content and be on top of social media 24 seven. That's exhausting. It's exhausting. And then for you, I mean, you have to go out and get your own sponsors and, and like, um, you know, deal with all your own sponsors on a personal level. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but in, in, in a different perspective too, I've appreciated it because it's taught me a different skill set. Like I'm like, Oh, I'm just a small business. And I have to like be a good business person and I have to show up and sometimes I have to be a leader and sometimes I have to be a follower or whatever. It teaches you different dynamics in life, which I think I'll be better for when I retire eventually yeah. too. I'm never going to retire though. It's not in the plan <laughs> to see how far I can go. First of all, I would say that, the, I mean, I really, uh, uh, appreciate and respect what you just said. I mean, I think that that's right. And that's a great attitude to have. And second of all, I would encourage you never to retire Yeah, <laughs> because what you're doing, you love what you're doing and you should do it as long as you can. And that's the interesting part about our sport, maybe not being taken too seriously because you can kind of carve out your own path and like figure it out. You could be a pro skier, Levi. <laughs> I see you go to Alaska every year. <laughs> I think, I don't, I don't think I, no, I don't think I could, but, um, yeah, that's the thing. Like eventually I, you know, you get pushed out of top level road cycling you just can't do it anymore um and it's you can reinvent yourself in other ways i suppose but um yeah i think with what you do there's more canvas to create your own path Mm -hmm. which is beautiful it's pretty inspiring yeah because i don't really see the end like Uh yeah how how old were you by the way when you were in the tour and racing at your peak um 
Well, that's a cool thing about cycling. I mean, you can, you can be really competitive until you're 40. Mm-hmm. Um, Still. I, yeah. My last tour, I was 38. No, 39. Wow. Yeah. 38. Sorry. It takes a second. 38. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I think also of like for women, I know there's like this thing that I called like an older women's strength. Like mm-hmm. our endurance might come a little bit later. Is that similar for men? And Totally. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then also like in big mountain skiing, like experience is mm-hmm. essential. Mm-hmm. And the first time I went to Alaska, I didn't get one shot, but five, six, 10 years later, you're like, oh yeah, I got this and I know how to do it. Is that the same when you're racing? Like the experience really pays off? I think so. I mean, um, I think there's a sweet spot where you're still physically at your best and you have experience Mm -hmm. and then, you know, you can start to, to lose it physically, but endurance sport, like, yeah, you don't, you don't lose endurance very quickly or, um, you know, over, uh, yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. It's just like, it just doesn't go away that quickly. So you can hang on for a long time. Right. Yeah. Like your two month break, you're not losing everything. No, it's not a, yeah. I mean, you could take a year off and, and come back, but it's just age wise. Like you, you don't, you just don't lose that over age. Whereas like fast switch fiber explosiveness. Yeah. You lose that. Yeah. I mean, you don't see many sprinters in their thirties, for example. Mm-hmm. It seems like the average age, I'd be curious what the average age of the Peloton is actually. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. But I mean, nowadays, like, don't ask me because I don't understand all the best guys are in their early 20s, which has never happened before. Yeah, it's quite mind blowing. The last like, what, four or five years, it's all these early 20 year olds. And I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. I feel I kind of feel like lost because I just can't account for it. Yeah. Do you think that professional cycling in the United States is on the rise or like, Mm -hmm. what do you think about that? It's tough. You know, there's, there's not a lot of road racing in the U S but, um, I, I think there's still a path to like the tour de France, for example, for, for, a uh, uh, young American, because there are these gravel races that are popular now. They're, they're just way easier for organizers to put on because there's no traffic control. Mm-hmm. Shutting down roads in the U S is just next to impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that because I work with, um, a team that puts on an event in Sonoma County. It's a called, it's a grand fondo. It's not a real like, Levi's, grand fondo. Ra- fondo. Levi's grand fondo. Yes. Yeah. Which I will do one day. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're more than welcome. I'd be honored. Um, but we deal with traffic control and it's, it's really hard. It's really expensive. So mm. it's the number one reason why road racing is dying or next to dead in the U S Whereas gravel racing is, is easier because they're on these roads that aren't even paved. So nobody's driving them. Right. Which you'd think they're not a lot of those in the U S but there's still some out there. Yeah. Uh, like in Kansas, for example, there's a, there's a big race that's 200 miles long. It's all on gravel roads. Yes. Um, but so anyway, back to the point is there's still a path for an American to get to the tour de France through those events or you know, do it like I did and just move to Belgium and school of hard knocks. <laughs> right. I mean, there's so few Americans in the tour right now. Like 
but I've been exposed to some young riders like doing these rides, like the Mountains to Desert and Telluride, and I'm totally spacing his name right now. He was younger. He had a little flask of Malibu at the start line because he wasn't taking it super seriously, yeah. and I loved his vibe. Yeah. He was obsessed with butterflies. I'm giving you clues, but I don't know. <laughs> I can't think of his name. But he was like, he was on the path for sure. Yeah. He smoked everyone in the race without trying. Was this, is this somebody in the tour right now? Um, no. Oh, okay. and, and I don't know. He was on the path at that point in time. He was a competitive road cyclist. I think he lived in Utah. Um, but it was really cool to see him show up at that race. Like I've done, I mean, I don't, I guess that one was a race. I've done Wait, more. You're talking about TJ Eisenhart? Yes. <laughs> you nailed it. Yes. Of course you are. I should have <laughs> known. Oh, I, I'll send this to TJ so he can hear it. That's, yeah. that's rad. You butterflies. That's what tipped me off. Yeah. I was yeah. like, there's something's going to click for yeah. sure. <laughs> but yeah, he was at the start line and yeah. I did that race with Jim and Hillary and we were all just like, who is this kid? Like he's got this little Malibu flask and he's yeah. just like enjoying it and truly had love for the sport, but yeah. like shared that, like brought yeah. everyone around him in and it was, yeah. TJ has the, like, he's got the vibes going on for sure. He's, he's got he's the, the best. Yeah. He actually designed our kit for the Grand Fondo this year and like did a custom paint, uh, paint job on a bike. And then he did a custom painting during our, um, our live auction that we had. It was, it was really cool. That is so yeah. cool. I was like, you're a surfer stuck in a yeah. cyclist body. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he definitely like shatters the stereotype of the uptight type A professional road cyclist, which is great. We yeah. need that. Yeah. Although I don't think of you guys as being uptight and type A. Well, I mean, I think most of us are, you know, like that. <laughs> you kind of have to be maybe. I mean, look at the Tour de France. You know, you got the yellow jerseys. He's, he's like perfect. He doesn't Almost make a mistake. Robotic. Yeah. Hard to relate to. But I, I guarantee you he's a real human. He's just, he's in this, um, he's in this like uh, bubble where he's, he's holding everything inside. Mm-hmm. And he's like holding his breath for three weeks, mm-hmm. which is in it. If you realize that, like it's really impressive because he's keeping it all together. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Tade is way more, uh, loose and happy and not that Vanguard's not happy, but he's just, he's being himself. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that, I think that's why the stereotype is there because I think most of the time it's, it's such hard work and takes so much discipline that, it's hard to just kind of let go and be free. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like the truth with a lot of athletes at the top of their sports. So they all have these like personality quirks or for that time they're hyper-focused and doing the thing. Yeah. And the, the ones that are hard on themselves and are, are kind of uptight type A are the ones that succeed because they're so hard on themselves. Right. Which, you know, is ironic. You don't need to be, but it helps you get there in a sense. Well, I think I'm battling with that right now as mm-hmm. I get older in my sport. I'm like, I don't need to hold myself to such high expectations. Like mm-hmm. that only leaves you in with like a slight mental struggle after the fact, if you don't meet those expectations. But simultaneously, I always recognize that that's what's gotten me to where I'm at. I think that there's, it, it, when you're younger, it helps you get to a point. And then there's a point where we should, most of us don't, but we should abandon that mm-hmm. um, because we've already developed our skill and we have the confidence of what we can do. And it only starts to get in the way if we're hard on ourselves. Yep. It can be um, too much. Totally. But uh, that's, that's, that's a tough transition to make. Yeah. 
I mean, I can look back and, and I know when I should have started to like do that work for myself. Was it after you retired? No, it was definitely, I was definitely still racing. And it was, it was, it was only, um, creating a burden and stress on myself to be, to continue to be hard on myself. Mm -hmm. I might be in that phase. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, I don't know. I went into this year, like really, truly questioning if I still had the desire to film at a top level where your risk to injury is high. Mm -hmm. And that was after last summer I had my sixth knee surgery. So I was like, don't Mm want to do that again. Um, and I was totally driven when I was out there. I was like, Oh, still have this still want to be here every single day, still super fired up. Part of it too is Jeremy Jones told me last year, he was like, Michelle, I think you've hit the biggest cliff you're ever going to hit. And I was like, no, (laughs) you know how to light a fire within me. Reverse (laughs) psychology. Totally. I don't think he meant it for reverse psychology, but I I tried. Hold my beard, Jerry. Yeah. I didn't land, but I tried. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you retired. And what was that? Like, what happened after? I'm asking for a friend. Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, the end of my career was traumatic. It was the worst nightmare come true. Um, not only did I lose what I loved, but it was in a, in a very, um, traumatic public way. And I think it just, it just felt so much bigger than me that I got, I disassociated from it and probably from myself and didn't process it for a long time. Um, because it, it, It was a big deal and it was like a lot of public criticism, but it also felt much bigger than it was mm-hmm. for me personally. And I think for the other group of guys that went through it as well. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, like I'm, I'm totally at peace with the decision decisions I made. I think I did the best I could. I think the others did the best they could. It was a, not a, it just was a rock and a hard place and not the, not a situation that I would have, uh, if I had control and power over, I definitely wouldn't have chosen for any of us. And it took a long time for me to just be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I felt, I certainly felt bad at the time because I was, I knew I was doing something that was against the quote unquote rules, what were on paper and that people maybe have expected, uh, a different reality than what was happening. Um, so yeah, it took a long time, many, many years mm-hmm. to get to that point. And, um, but what's remained constant for me is the bike. I ride my bike, um, except for in the winter, I ride my bike almost every day because it's just part of me. It's what I need to do for myself and to be myself and to be grounded and centered and connect to nature connect mm-hmm. to myself. Um, yeah. So what happened after, that's what happened after I retired. It just, it just took a long time to get, to come to peace with all that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not like the picturesque retirement that mm-hmm. you would hope for. And it's almost just this interesting era of cycling that you were in when you were at your top that like, yeah, the audience probably didn't want or expect or think that that was happening even though it was and yeah Yeah. rock in a hard place like you said yeah i mean it on my side it was 
part of the justification was like, well, everybody knows what's going on. Are they not reading the news? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's so obvious. So like, yeah, I, I, I can do this and not feel like I'm lying to anybody. Um, not everybody, of course, followed the sport that closely. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, but, you know, it, it, when I look back on all of it now, even though it was messy and traumatic and full of um, heartbreak and um, heavy emotions, it made me who I am today and it made me stronger and it gave me greater perspective and appreciation of what matters and um, acceptance acceptance of reality and what is. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful in yeah. the end. Yeah, in the end. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And you are still riding your bike every day. I follow you on Strava and yeah. I always am dissecting like, what are his <laughs> routes? Oh my gosh, and the times and everything. And so do you ride primarily on the road still? Or do you mix it up? Like what's your percentage road to mountain? I guess it depends. Like uh, now that the trails are clear, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll probably ride more mountain. Yeah. But it's tough to ride the same amount on the mountain bike because like I was saying, the road cycling is such low impact. It's like ride around the lake is easy. Yeah. It really is. I mean, but to ride four hours on your mountain bike is a little harder because it beats you up. But I love going out and just being out by myself in the, in the forest on the mountain bike. Yeah. It's the best. Yeah. I know yesterday I went in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, because I worked all morning, and I was like, okay, hey, I got, a, got this break. And I was just thinking, like, these guys are riding in, like, 95-degree weather to 100 degrees. Like, I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess another, like, a couple questions for someone who is always looking to improve upon their endurance. And you say it doesn't really leave you. Like, are you growing that, you think, on a year-to-year basis? Like, as I get older, I feel like it's stacking up a bit. Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm past my um, best, but I still feel, I feel like I can go, I can get into shape very quickly because I've, I have so many years and miles under my belt. Um, but, uh, what, what was the question? <laughs> I don't know. Do you, do you, I guess, do you feel like the endurance aspect of like for me, there's endurance when I'm hiking up the hill and in the summertime it switches to like, mm-hmm. I want to be fast on my bike and I want to be able to hang on to Jim Morrison's tire, which is a rarity, but I can do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, yeah, does that continue to grow over your lifetime? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess like I, for me, it's not going to continue to grow because I'm past my best, but uh, I'll definitely hang on to it. From, to most of it, yeah. at least. And I think for for people who maybe haven't done 10 Tour de France's, they can continue to improve um, pretty late in life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say the number one thing is consistency. Yeah. That's, that's what matters the most. You know, people like to get into the weeds about what to eat and what kind of intervals to do and equipment and all that. But really what matters is like, you want to ride your bike just go ride it every day you don't have to ride a lot right just consistency and then like how often do you take a rest day you said you ride almost every day yeah i mean i if if i were training like really hard i would maybe take a, a day off every couple of weeks or oh wow um, yeah 
or, or just it's always better to go do a really short easy ride because that's like a massage you get yes blood flow yeah um so you don't ever really have to take a day off you just have to have super short and easy days today was my recovery day yeah did nice. like well 10 miles to perfect. the river to swim and then back perfect and then the old mill climb <laughs> yeah <laughs> which i was smoked on you should paperboy up that you yeah know what that is no it's like paperboy when they went from house to house delivering papers oh yep so zigzag just, yeah you cut the gradient yep yep because that is a steep road you live on it's a steep road <laughs> but it's a good one it's a it packs a punch it's like a test piece for me every spring yeah but then you get then you get home and you end the get off the bike with legs full of lactic acid that's not good oh so i should be going the long way you around. should go the long easy way okay because you do want to do a warm-up and a cool down that's true yeah Oh, I've got the warm-up part. I do a, like a block lap, yeah, and then I get or on it. Or you just descend down Old Mill. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, kind of a warm-up. Yeah. But then once I'm on the road, like I've been actually riding my gravel bike a lot more, and I mean to have two sets of tires. But right now our roads are pretty gravelly anyway, so yeah. I'm like kind of okay with having this stout bike. Yeah. Um, and leaves your options open to get on some dirt if you need to. Totally. Like yeah. climb up Barker Pass and continue on on the dirt yeah. road. Love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, nice. But like, I do have a fear of cars when mm -hmm. I'm road riding. And I don't know if there's any like, is that, that's just something that's a part of it, hey? It is. Yeah. I mean, I got run over once and it stuck with me. So yeah, it's, it's scary. Yeah. But, um. There's little things I, you know, I've learned to do uh, about where to ride, where not to ride. Sometimes you take the lane, believe it or not. Like, um, I'm trying to think of an example around here. Like descending into Crystal Bay or Incline, it's yeah. kind of narrow. Yeah. And when you're descending, you can usually go as fast or faster than cars. I like to get in the middle of the lane to not, because if people... If you give them the room to pass and they try to pass and there's another car on the other lane, like it gets really close and they can clip you. Yeah. That's a good tip. Yeah. Jimmo's training me up. He's like, these are all the hand signals. And then <laughs> I guess I got into it. I was a mountain biker and then I had an injury and like by way of that injury, I was like, oh, I can set a goal for myself. That's like an event. I like setting goals because my sport's not very goal oriented. I just want to have fun when I'm skiing the first goal oriented aspect of that was like climbing Denali and skiing it. But other than that, I'd never like set that benchmark goal. Um, but I was like, Oh, I'm going to enter into Reba's race, the gravel race. Nice. Cause she was a friend and she was like, you got to come out and do it. And so I entered into that and then really started training. And I think the first race I did to, or it wasn't a race, it was a group ride was for the Michael J Fox foundation down in Sonoma. Yeah. And that was my first Peloton experience and everyone was so nice and welcoming and like, it was great. But I was like, Jim can trained me around the lake. Like these are the hand signals. This is what you're going to like experience. And you want to be six inches off the tire or closer. Like he was really drilling it in, which is pretty intimidating when you're new. But there was one moment where like a grape truck had flipped and there was grapes all over the road. <laughs> and I was like, what's the hand signal for grapes? <laughs> like we were losing it because it was such a random occurrence. That is weird. I've never seen that. Yeah, it was so funny. But <laughs> now like I love getting in these group rides though, even if they're, I mean, for me, I'm not racing. Like I just want to finish. And it's a rad way to set a goal and challenge myself. Like the death ride or like, in you, which I said I would never do again, and now I'd love to do it again. Oh, you've done the death ride? Yeah. God, that's a that's a hard one. I mean, I've Is never it? done it, but I've done all the roads. That's a big deal. Yes, it's a hard one. It yeah. felt hard. 
I mean, it's called the death ride for a reason. Totally. <laughs> Full skeleton on a bicycle. Still have the t-shirt from when my uncle did it like years ago yeah. that I wear. It's a vintage death ride shirt, but that felt hard. Yeah. That was a lot of climbing. Those were huge climbs. Yeah. But it was also like this moment where I was like, oh, this is such a sport for longevity. Like there was really old people out on the mm -hmm. same course riding epic bikes like and mm -hmm. i was next to them and i it, it was a really cool aspect about those group rides yeah riding in a group on a road bike is um underrated yeah it's it's super fun i mean to to move along that fast and that efficiently yeah it's really fun so cool and you know you bring up the point of older riders it's a sport that you can do your entire life yeah low impact it's good for you um yeah i mean it's one of the reasons i love it yeah and do it until i die yeah <laughs> so cool and i do think that it's one of the best cross training for skiing yeah uh, between mountain biking mountain biking i think that's that quick decision making when you're descending super mm -hmm. fast mm -hmm. i think that is super relatable and it's quite a similar body position but with road riding like when I set that goal after knee surgery, the gym didn't get my muscles back to the same size. Like there was, there was always this unequal, it was a couple centimeters or millimeters too small, my left leg to my right or whatever. But road riding and training for endurance rides got my muscles back to the same. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was very noticeable and I was like, oh, that's just what I need to do. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought that, but that's cool. Do you still race? I'll do some fun local races. Like there was a gravel race here in Truckee that the the team that I work with on my grandfather, Levi's, Levi's grandfather, they do a gravel race here in Truckee. I did that. It was super fun. That's it, awesome. It's a really good field there, though. I got kind of kind of got my ass kicked. I don't believe it. <laughs> no, I did. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then you do the Levi's grandfather, and that's yeah. kind of your legacy. That's what you're... Yeah, I... I'm, I don't know. I just had an idea one day that, uh, grand fondos, which were, have been a thing in Italy need to exist in the U S to give people that experience of riding in a big Peloton and how fun and fast that is and liberating and, and, um, just what the human body can do on a bike is amazing. So, uh, I wanted to create an event to give people the experience of, of participating in a, in a big Peloton with, uh, a lot of fanfare and uh, ac and accomplishing a route that they normally couldn't do on their own. Mm -hmm. So we support the riders with rest stops and mechanical support so that they can go out and accomplish something uh, that's a big deal. I love that. You yeah. touched on two things that I wanted to talk about. The fans at the Tour de France. Yeah. <laughs> that must be on one end so amazing. Yeah. And then I've definitely noticed the fans getting in the way yeah. on multiple occasions yeah. this tour. Yeah. Talk about that. Like No, you're absolutely right. The energy that I remember actually absorbing, which is like such a cool experience to, to, to feel a tra a, like a literal, not a figurative, but a literal transfer, transfer of energy from the fans to you that allowed you to go above and beyond what you normally could do on your own capacity. It's like, you really are like, oh, this is not just me that's pushing the pedals of the bike. Like it's, it's all of this collective energy was truly incredible. And it's a great lesson in uh, in oneness and the universe. And it's just, I mean, kind of spiritual, obviously mm -hmm. is not what I'm getting at, but mm -hmm. 
Yeah, on the other hand, it's like, okay, now back the fuck off because you're too close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Like yeah. some of the climbs, I'm like, how do these, you can't even pass right now. Like, you're in it. Yeah, and I think if you've, I don't know if you've noticed in the tour, but um, ta- it comes into tactics too because, was it yesterday or today? Vanguard was kind of like blocking Pogachar from attacking because he knew to ride in a way that the fans were, it was so narrow, he just rode in a way to block him, mm-hmm. which is a legitimate thing to do. Totally. So yeah, it's part of the race. It's something that can't be controlled. This isn't a stadium. You don't buy a ticket to go watch the Tour de France. Right. It's not possible. It wouldn't be possible if they tried, is what I'm saying. Um, so that's what makes the sport beautiful. Unfortunately, sometimes it's it affects the race. There's been times when the fans have crashed riders mm-hmm. and, have, and affected the result. But, yeah, it's just, it's part of it, and it makes it beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, it's amazing. I, I, I've done one race where there was fans, and yeah. it was mostly the other riders that would come back after their stage and, like, cheer you on. It was the Trans-Cascadia, oh, the yeah. Enduro race. Yeah. And I did feel on fire. I was yeah. like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, have you gone back as, like, have you gone back and watched the tour? Live? No. Yeah. No. It's a much better experience. I mean, I think everybody should go and, and see the uh, the enormity of the Tour de France and the circus that it is and just the infrastructure and coordination, coordination of it all is just mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. But if you really want to see the race, you got to watch it on t- television instead. Totally. Otherwise, you're going to stand there for hours and they're going to go zip right past you. It's the same with the X Games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's so cool. I have a girlfriend that got to ride in a car. Hadley Hammer, she's a skier. Also amateur, super fun biker like myself. Yeah. We're into it. Um, but yeah, she had nothing but good things to say about being there in Oh, well, being in the car is different. That's mm. that's quite the experience. Actually, I, I mean, I've rode in the car in time trials behind other riders, but the directors would always go on about how just unbelievably nerve-wracking it was to drive the car in the like how dangerous it was yeah. and stressful it was for them to drive behind the Peloton. Like, yeah. Cause they're, if we go down a mountain pass in the Pyrenees, of the Alps, they're, they're getting dropped. Like they have to like push the car to the limits to Whoa. stay with us. Right. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. You got to have a good car. Yeah. And then I noticed like, I think it was in stage 19, I want to say where one individual, he, he, he blew a chain and then the Shimano car came up but they didn't have the right pedals for him. And they gave him like three bikes and it was like, he was in the lead pack too. And it was so heartbreaking to watch that. Like, I don't know, happen. I I think I only saw that on Instagram. I don't know what stage that was, but I saw him like just throw the bike down. Like what the hell? Yeah. And then he had to wait for his team car, which I think the referee or something had stopped all the team cars and he lost his opportunity in the lead pack. Yeah. Part of the sport. Totally. And are you guys like limited on like when you can eat and not? Yeah, we are. Um, Typically, I think the rules are the same, but the first 50K, you can't take food from the car. You can eat from your pockets, of course, but you can't go get food or bottles from the car in the first 50K. And then depending on what the stage is like, if it's like a flat stage, it's the last 20 or 25, if I remember correctly. If it's a mountain stage, it's the last 10, 5 or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And you sometimes said there's if it's really hot the, they'll change the rules mid race. Right. Yeah, I think they did that this year. I noted that. Um, 
And then like you said, you forget to eat as much as you need. How many calories are you taking in every day when you're on the tour? Well, I, nowadays they're trying to aim for like, um, 90 grams of carbs in an hour, which is pretty tough. You have to train yourself to do that. It's um, like force feeding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at first. Yeah. And not everybody can do that. I don't think I could get away with doing that. My stomach isn't, I don't have an iron stomach. Can you put that into terms of like how much food that would be? Um, I just don't have 90 grams mapped out in my head. 90 grams of carbs. So that's uh, 360 calories, right? Times four. Okay. Am I doing my math right? Yeah. So that would be like two bars, like let's say. Every hour. Yeah, every hour. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And is that like, I mean, then you, what time of the day does the tour start? Like, does your ride start? Well, they try to have it end at the same time every day, which is primetime kind of television. So okay. So 5.30. Okay. So it depends on how long the stage is, right. when it starts. I think the earliest we'd ever start, like really long day would maybe start at 9.30, would be the earliest. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's noon. If it's a short stage, start at 1. Okay. Like time trial, late. Well, time trial is spread out because of you. Oh, like, yeah. everybody's going on their own. So it depends on if you're in last or first. True. <laughs> and then what do you do on your rest days? Uh, that depends on the stage afterwards. Mm. Like this, this last rest day, they had a time trial afterwards. So like the favorites, they had to get out there on the rest day and work hard because um, on rest days, your body can actually kind of shut down and you become super compensated in the sense that you take on a lot of water and, and sugar in your muscles, which is all great, but you also need to sweat and maybe not eat quite as much if, if it's a time trial the next day, because you can get kind of heavy and bloated and, um, sleepy. Oh man. Fascinating. Yeah, sucks. yeah. So like sometimes you have to push yourself during the rest day and that's, it's the most painful thing ever. Oh, brutal. So, yeah. Yeah. There, but there were times when we had like a flat stage after the rest day and then you're like, Oh, I, I can take it super easy and eat a lot because you can kind of ease into the ease into racing again. Yeah. Yeah. This is all so fascinating to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've ran through like all of the questions that I had directly for you, but if there's any secrets, please let me know. <laughs> no, I, I can't think of any. I'm, I think we covered it all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really, really appreciate your time yeah, this and your openness fun. and everything. Yeah. It was super wonderful fun. to learn. I'm, I'm honored to be here with you. Thank you so yeah. much. One day we'll go for a ride. Yeah, for sure. As long as you, you know, go skiing with me someday. Oh, <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Wait, you go to Alaska every year. I do. We, we have a friend in common, right? Skylar. Yep. Yeah. Oh, you go with Skylar. I go with Skylar. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I haven't been with Skylar the last couple times, but I've been there with Skylar a lot in Alaska. He's super fun. He is the person that I credit to getting me into the bigger mountains. Nice. When yeah. I was like, he speaks very highly of you. Love him like yeah. a brother. Yeah. 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 He loves you like a sister. I've heard him say that more than once. Oh, that is so awesome. That's right. Silverton <laughs> Mountain Guides. Shout out to them. Yeah, They're of course. Snow ninjas. The best. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, yeah. thank you so much. Thanks, Michelle. 
Huge thank you to Levi for answering all of my curiosities with the tour and road cycling. I find this kind of dedication to sport, pushing of the physical limits of the human body, and determination to be captivating. Sitting across from Levi gave me a new perspective on the competitive mind as well. He's soft-spoken, humble, and so genuinely kind, yet 11 years ago retired from a lifelong pursuit and a sport he loved, which I think is one of the absolute most difficult sporting events in the world. As we spoke about his retirement and his experience on the tour, I felt a lot of empathy for the position those athletes were in and wondered how I would handle the turmoil that preceded such international news. After we turned the mics off, we walked downstairs to kick tires in the bike room, admire the quiver, the relics of history, including the bike he won the time trial on, the bike he won Leadville on, and the trophy wall, naturally tucked away in the bike room, out of sight to visitors, matching the humble athlete that earned all of those awards. Thank you, Levi, for continuously inspiring myself and so many others to push ourselves, dream big, and accomplish goals. The Tour de Femmes has begun. This year marks the second year of the race, and I know I'll be tuning in. Watch women's sports. See you next time on Care Less, Do More. Side note, I can't believe those guys don't talk shit in the peloton. <laughs>